Hebron go just in just a moment, but I want to ask you first to find in your Bible page 1223. In a few moments, we'll be reading from that. But I want to say again, our heartfelt thanks, as I have many times to each of the teachers, but special thanks to Marcia today for uh, double and triple duty at times for these classes. And it's, uh, it's just really a blessing to have these times together, and boys and girls and explorers and pathfinders now can go on down for the time together for kids' church while, while we turn to the third chapter of the Gospel of John, I ask you to find it just for beginning. We all use different Bibles, of course, but if we could read together from these Bibles, we'll have a reading together in a few moments. The lasting living legacy of the event that I mentioned yesterday in the email to everybody, and as we start today, we think about this, um, what seems like in the distant mists of history, 504 years ago is a long time, and yet the reason I highlight it is that when we come to something as, as monumental as the fact of forgiveness, the fact of freedom in Christ, the being placed by Almighty God as redeemed and cleansed sinful people, made fit, prepared, made right is the word, the key word justified in the Bible, really means to be put right with God, to be in right standing with God. And when that, that truth, as crystal clear as it is in the pages of Scripture, but was obscured for, for really for centuries, for the, for the mass, the 99% of the population, because of, of the darkness of an era of religious hierarchy and tyranny, that literally robbed the common man or woman of their own copy and access to the words of God. When any system would try to take the word of God out of the hands of every man, woman, boy, and girl, or obscure the word of God, or, or to try to claim that somehow the word of God can only be understood by some advanced minds that have special access to God's wisdom, that is devastating to the very essence of the gospel. So the living, lasting legacy of that truth is in sync with the banner that I ask we think about in these weeks between early October and on into the Thanksgiving time. And we're keeping that banner kind of uh, as a focus here around today's message as we conclude this brief series on encountering Jesus. And that banner that I mentioned three weeks ago is Acts 2.42, where the Bible tells us we're called to continue or persevere, stay with it, stay at it, press in. Those words all relate to the meaning of Acts 2.42, continuing in the apostles' doctrine and in the fellowship and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, that word doctrine is a different Greek word meaning what we are learning about, the teachings that were at the very core of apostolic life in the birthing of the early church. So today, when we look at God's fierce redeeming love, we are going directly to the heart of two of these great truths. The two truths that we'll be touching on today are regeneration, the new birth, and being made right with God, being put right with God, that is, justification, and their 
they're signaled to us in an astounding way in the third chapter of the Gospel of John. For one brother I heard some years ago made a great observation about the explaining or the experiencing of these truths, these great biblical truths, and this illustration has been helpful to me. This brother said that the way some people approach the doctrines of the Bible is, is kind of like trying to dissect a frog in a laboratory. That is, you might get all the little pieces and parts out, but the frog won't jump anymore. And, and that's what we don't want to do. Real, biblical, powerful, grace-empowered encountering of the Lord Jesus is where we discover that what we refer to as the teachings of a congregational life are really the life-giving impartation of God to quicken believers and equip believers to be carriers of the good news. This is a living good news. And John 3 gives us one of the great models, one of the great examples of how apostolic truth touches the heart, that is, the life-giving truths of the new covenant that Christ sealed with his very blood. We sang it this morning. It was the blood of our risen lamb that set the captives free. And it is because of that we see a great example here in that I began on this section of John two weeks ago by talking a little bit about the literary artistry of John. It's important today simply for this reason that John, the Holy Spirit through the writer John gives us an understanding of these vital truths that are so basic to your confidence to stand and pray and worship and understand the reason that God has sent his son into the world for his assigned mission of life, sinless life, his timeless teachings, his sacrificial atoning death on the cross, the burial, his resurrection, his ascension, that God gives us a way to access these monumental truths by giving us three of the ways that the Scripture often gives us and merges them together. Those three ways are first, a story, a narrative, a discourse. There's a real human being. We looked at contrasting characters last week on the one end, a despised, someone despised by the, the general public, and that was Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. And then we looked at this w very highly esteemed individual, Nicodemus, and yet both of them so different in their personalities and their status in life, and yet they meet Jesus exactly at the same place. That is, at their point of need of the new birth, the need of salvation, the need of forgiveness, the need of being put right with God. So the story, the story itself, or the dialogue, as Nicodemus comes at night, gives us a first point of access. Secondly, out of these three ways that the Bible brings us these truths, is, is something that's also very frequent in Scripture, and that is a, a type or a prophetic picture from the Old Testament, and we'll see that in verse 14, the lifting of the bronze serpent on the pole in the wilderness. And then finally... There is the illumination of, of God's gracious working in the hearts of people by directly bringing to us the invitation to believe. Believing, putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ 
is the focus of the passage. So I'd like to ask you to read in page 1223 from beginning at verse 9 today. We'll read it that part from verse 9 through 21. And let's stand together for the reading of God's word today. This is John 3, 9 to 21. As we think about the fierce, redeeming love of the Lord Jesus, our Savior. John 3, 9. Would you read it with me? Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen, and you do not receive our witness. By the way, that 11th verse is one of the signals of the Lord Jesus in perfect harmony with our Heavenly Father saying, my very presence here is the incarnate God bringing you this heavenly truth. Look at verse 12. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone Practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light, that his deeds may be clearly seen, that they have been done in God. Don't leave that 21st verse before we just touch this quickly. That the conclusion of this, this rich and, 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 and profoundly revealing passage about the mission of the Lord Jesus is is not only the gift of salvation, but it is the end of verse 21 shows us that those who come to the light, those who receive this light of the good news of what he does through regenerating the heart and through putting a human being right with God, that from this point on, their deeds are being done. Look at those last two words of verse 21. Their deeds are being done in God, not just for God, but they're being done in God. God, that is to say, in a poetically rich way, the scripture is saying that to be in Christ, to be born again, to be redeemed, to experience the the fierce redeeming love of our Savior means that God places you into Christ, as we heard in Romans chapter 5, and you stand in him rejoicing in the hope of the glory of God so that even in our humanness, even in our imperfect humanness, continuing to walk in this terra firma, this earth of 
human failure, Christ, the risen king, walks in you and with you and is in you the hope of glory, as Colossians 1.27 tells us. This verse is saying, today, we can come to the light. Thank you. Would you turn around and tell somebody, this is great news. Would you tell them that? This is great news. And thank you. Well, so as you think about this, then, wonderful thing that I, I love to think about here is just that, that um, to return to the understanding of why we need to be saved brings us into this, this wonderful display of the fierce, redeeming love of God. So at the heart of this passage is a, is a, is a clear understanding of why 504 years ago a, a humble common monk, a young man who entered the monastery in the beginning of the 16th century with nothing but uh, aspirations to become uh, fully immersed in the traditions and the understandings of, of, of the classic church-dominated traditions of his time and, and wanted, above all, to find what it meant to have a sense that he could get close to God. And, of course, his, his story is quite uh, involved, and, of course, we know that a lot of his story revolved around Martin Luther, this young monk, uh, just being, I think of it as a, like a chain wrapped around an axle of guilt just wrapped around the axle of guilt, seeking to find the escape in all the things that he was required to study. And the story results in this moment, which, again, wasn't so, in his mind, wasn't the absolute breaking up of that system, but it was the challenging of all kinds of things being taught under the tyranny of a religious hierarchy that were contrary to the clear explanations of God's grace in scripture and the the climactic moment for him was discovering in Romans chapter 1 17 that there is a righteousness that comes only from God and when that righteousness comes from God it comes in the person of Jesus and it invites the sinner in his or her absolute desperate understanding of the gap between their sinfulness and the untouchable holiness of God, that Christ Jesus himself comes to each person as he did to Nicodemus in this encounter and says, unless you be born of water and of the Spirit, you will not encounter the kingdom of God. Now, the two parts of that we want to look at in a moment, the, the, the entering and the seeing, but first think about that question we read earlier where Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Jesus answers, by water and by the Spirit. Now, again, back in the day of Martin Luther, these words, these symbolic words, were wrapped up in a, in a form of doctrine that had been co-opted to serve the ritual traditions of a hierarchical system. And so the water and the Spirit were completely wrapped up in a religious tradition which took the individual encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ out of the picture and made it a relating of the soul to a system. So here in Nicodemus' day, there's a similar thing happening because Nicodemus 
had come at his advanced age and his experience and, and his uh, achievements as a Pharisee to understand connecting with God on the basis of an external religious system. Now, take a moment just to think about this from a cross-reference. We won't turn to it. But notice that in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 1 to 4, there's a whole section, the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, that describes these systems, these religious systems, as being like shadows over against which the reality is the person of Jesus. I've often used a different illustration, and that would be scaffolding. Religious systems may have their place in certain structures, certain valuable place in gaining, giving order or uh, meaning or some uh, point of beginning for people to, to encounter the truths of Scripture. But always, always, the, the light we read about in verse 19, 21 is the light of the Word of God itself. It is the light that God himself sends. It is that light that David spoke about in Psalm 119, 105 when he said, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. David wrote in Psalm 119, verse 130, The entrance of thy word brings light and it gives understanding unto the simple. The Apostle Paul drew that imagery of light over into the very direct explanation of what we see with Nicodemus here in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6, when he said, God who commanded the light to shine out of darkness has now shined in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That is, the person of Jesus brings the light for which the hearts of men yearned and hungered. So the light that Nicodemus needed to answer this question was, what is this being born again? What is this being born again of water and of the Spirit? What could this possibly mean to me? And as he asked that question, Jesus now gives us two verbs. If you look at that fifth verse, Jesus gives us two verbs that, that help us see what we all needed in order to be the recipients of this light, John 3, 5. I'm turning it off and turning it back on. Sometimes they reset. <laughs> there we go. We'll do it in a second. So if you look at your, that fifth verse in your Bible, John 3, you see that he says, except ye be born again, he will not see the kingdom of God. Yeah, for some reason, just zapped right out. Thank you. So when you think about that, now no, notice that fifth verse. That um, what I'd like you to notice and think about is that, is that um, the invitation to receive the Lord Jesus is to come into the kingdom. But there's another aspect that is vital for us today. And it's vital in this place. It's vital in your life today. And that is we need eyes open to actually see the kingdom of which we are heirs. <laughs> And in fact, that's not surprising when we pair that up with Ephesians 1, 16 and 17 where the Apostle Paul prayed regularly for the churches of his day. In the Ephesians letter, chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, he said, I pray continuously that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, Ephesians 1, 17, the eyes of your understanding. Would you say with me, the eyes? Say, my eyes, 
the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. That's why I also added to this screen here, and I just wanted you to see this, that to me, it's a vital element of recapturing the wonder and the significance of being a born-again, redeemed child of God that we can say, had I not entered the kingdom, I couldn't see it. It's like Hershey Park. Until you, until you pay at the entrance, you can't see the roller coaster. It, it, it's, so you enter in, and then your eyes can be open. And then you can do the splashdown, and it's great. It's all good. And, and the point is that in Matthew 13, 16, Jesus drew from this truth to say to all of the disciples gathered around him, including the larger group of those that were following and feeding and receiving from him there in the mountains of Galilee, and he said, Blessed are your eyes, for they see. Now, wouldn't it be a tragedy today? And it could be. It could be true, couldn't it? That people could be in churches. They could be in the Christian life. They could be, they could they could order from Christian book distributors. They could, they could, you know, they could watch, they could watch some favorite uh, uh, Christian program on television, and yet not be seeing the kingdom, because the first thing is what he said to Nicodemus: entering the kingdom precedes seeing the kingdom. And when we say, "I want to receive the Lord Jesus in my heart." I want to not be one who's wandering in darkness. I want my eyes to be opened not only to the fact of my forgiveness, but to the fact that even in this life, until the day that I leave this body and go to be with Jesus, that God, through the Holy Spirit, is wanting to show me more of what it means to tap into the riches of His glory. Reaching back again 500 years to those days of the early days of the Reformation, we hear a lot of things about Martin Luther, but most people hear much less about some of the other reformers that worked closely because once the word spread, the Bible is for you. The Bible is not some obscure hidden book that only a few special clerical people can grasp. No, it is God's living word coming to the heart. And another one of those reformers who captured that and got that in his heart was Ulrich Zwingli over in, over in Switzerland. And one of his very interesting insights into why the new birth and the experience of knowing Christ had become so precious to him through understanding the Bible was God's word to him, Ulrich Zwingli wrote this in 1530. The word of God is certain and cannot fail us. It is clear and does not let us wander in darkness. The word of God teaches itself. It explains itself. And it brings the light of full salvation and grace to the human soul. These were the early pristine days of the of the discovery, the rediscovery in the 16th century of things that had been obscured and wrapped up in tradition and man's tyrannical desire to control the populace through, a, through an authoritarian system. Now, back into the text of John chapter 3, then think about what, G, what Nicodemus was learning. Nicodemus was learning then that this, these words, now we come to these words, water and spirit, and obviously we, we wrestle with that a little bit. What does he mean by being born of water? and born of the Spirit. Now, one of the things that's very consistent in the, in the Gospel of John is, is John bringing into the, into the 
forefront or into center stage the words that the Lord Jesus had woven into the tapestry of those, those three and a half unforgettable years that John and his associates walked closely with the Lord Jesus. And then by the Holy Spirit bringing this into focus, we see that God was using water, natural water, H2O, as a, as a substance to demonstrate this very fact of which we can't see with our natural eyes, and that is the fact of the new birth, the fact of what happens inside of the soul. In four different miracles, sign miracles in the Gospel of John, natural water is used to affect a miracle reflecting the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the turning of the water into wine in chapter 2, the gift of the water of life springing up from within in chapter 4, the outpouring of the water symbolizing the Holy Spirit's coming and his presence to flood into the soul of the redeemed in chapter 7. And then in chapter 9, a man born blind who Jesus meets in the center of Jerusalem and says, go wash in the pool of Siloam and come back. And he came back seeing. A miracle that uh, threw all the pharisaical leaders into a tizzy to try to uh, explain how it was that one born blind could say, I was blind. I can't explain it. I can't dissect the doctrine frog. But I'll tell you, I once was blind, now I see. And that became the springboard of Jesus saying in John 9 verse 12, you see, this miracle happened for all to know. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So a quick review we saw, I gave you this definition last week. It's so vital, though, to see it in light of understanding water and spirit. Jesus said, except you be born of water and the spirit. That is, regeneration or the new birth is not just, think about this now, it's not just a new start. It is that. It's not just forgiveness. It is that. Hallelujah. It is not just the promise of eternal life and a life in heaven where our, 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 our imaginations are fired even more extravagantly when we, lo- when we lose such a dear and precious loved one among us like, like our beloved Nancy and others that you can think of right now that have gone to be with Jesus. But you think of it and you realize the indescribable, the incandescent, the thing that is beyond our reach. The Holy Spirit now brings into the reality of the human heart. And what is significant in the new birth that is often missed is it's not just a cleansing or a forgiving or a washing away of the past. It is all of that, but it's more than that. It is the creating of a new identity in Christ. This is why Romans 8.16, so significant in this to help us understand Romans 8.16 is a distinction between the Holy Spirit, capital S, and my spirit, my human spirit, uh, small s. And that is that Romans 8.16 tells us, Father has given us his Holy Spirit to say, Abba, like a newborn baby, and then through our uttering of our Our most simplest expressions of praise to God, the Holy Spirit, capital S, bears witness with our spirit, small s, 
that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ Jesus. So to understand that the new birth here, what Titus 3.5 calls the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit, that this goes together, water and spirit, to bring to the life of the believer this assurance, this wonderful assurance that is so much in our modern world a part of our cyber technology. The identifying of a person in the cyber world now is one of the great um, areas of challenge and controversy and, and uh, guarding of privacies and so forth. It's a major issue in our world today, in the whole global environment the identity of people through the internet. Well, thousands of years before people were thinking like that, God had said, there's an identity that I want to give you. It's a new identity. It's an identity in Jesus Christ through the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. That is, Nicodemus was hearing the answer to his question, how can these things be? And the answer brought him into an opening of a new world of insight that God in his mind dealt with people through a religious system that was external to the person for the Lord Jesus he was opening Nicodemus mind to understand God's gift of salvation is the working of the interior of the real person uh, it's the same as the promise of Jeremiah 31 that an old covenant spoke to the externals of life do this and live, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. A better promise the gospel brings, it bids us fly and gives us wings. Jeremiah 31 says, the day is coming when I will enter into a new covenant with the house of Israel. And the sign of that covenant will be the writing of righteousness within the fleshly tables of the heart. Jesus is introducing Nicodemus to this fact and saying not only does it have to be a new birth, a regeneration, but it's an ongoing work of the Holy Spirit in the life of those who've received Jesus. This is why entering the kingdom and seeing the kingdom are two aspects of what we need today in the church, in Christianity, among, in all of the things that we're dealing with in our current world. We need to revisit and understand the Holy Spirit is doing a work in the lives of the redeemed, but we, we need him more than we often imagine. We need to be aware of what 1 John 5, verse 7 and 8 says, that uh, there are three that bear witness in heaven, the Spirit, the water, and the blood. To all together, the Holy Spirit's work, the washing of water by the word of God, and the indispensable fact of the shed blood of Jesus Christ what Peter called in 2 Peter 1, the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, these words were to fulfill images God had embedded in the very history of the people of Israel. And this is one of the reasons why when John, in the Gospel of John in chapter 19, when he's recounting the actual death of Jesus, being the closest and the longest standing at Calvary with Mary by his side, John witnesses what many who had fled in fear from Golgotha never saw. And that was the Roman spear 
taken by a Roman soldier, piercing the side of our crucified Lord so that blood and water came flowing out in a way that was distinguishable rather than just being one substance. The blood and the water was visible. Cardiologists have said that that is a sign of the aftermath of death and that uh, the suffering of Jesus contributed to this um, distinctiveness that John highlights. He saw blood and water and drew that in that 1 John 5, 7 text to say that actual act of God's redeeming love was so fierce for us, it was a fierce love, fierce enough to send his only begotten son to the cross. Now go back into your Bible text at John 3, 14. So to see why, and the connection here I think would be missed if we hadn't kind of tracked through this water and blood and spirit um, understanding. But when you get to that 14th verse, and maybe you did, and, and, and at other times maybe you have, um, you see here that the gospel writer John is describing how Nicodemus' question could be answered. Now, think of it like this. Um, I like the way Philip Keller, the author of a series of books well-known among Many people, uh, the shepherd looks at the 23rd Psalm, the shepherd looks at the good shepherd, the gardener looks at the fruit of the spirit. Wonderful series of books written about 45 years ago. One of Philip Keller's excellent works was on the life of the Lord Jesus. And he explains what Nicodemus was encountering that was so radical to his mind when he said that Jesus was using very familiar natural phenomena in the water and the spirit to show how God had reached down to earth to touch and transform lives. It was the will of God, the energy of God, think of this, the work of God to remake, regenerate, and restore men to his family. It was God's enterprise by his spirit, God's initiative that enabled fallen men to be reborn in spite of their sins and selfishness. It was a man's interior that had to be remade. This was the special work of God's Spirit. He came as a fresh cleansing wind to clear out the accumulated chaff and cobwebs of the old wicked ways. It was God who would enable the seeking soul to see that it was God's love for the world that enabled him to lay down his perfect, flawless life for lost men. As that began to dawn on Nicodemus' mind, Jesus reaches into the treasure chest of the Torah in the book of Numbers, chapter 21. And, and in that section, a wilderness miracle in a very obscure part of their wandering a miracle reveals the depth of human sinfulness that required God's almighty love to redeem us. And it was, it was this verse in 14, and when we read it in our Bibles, obviously, we are struck by the, the starkness of this. Look at that 14th verse. For 
as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man, Messiah, be lifted up. That, verse 15, what? It anticipates that famous 16th verse. But verse 15 says, why? Why did God command Moses to lift a bronze serpent in the wilderness? What an odd image. And verse 15 tells us why. And the Gospel of John synchronizes these facts and brings it with a blowtorch of power to us that all who believe might look and have eternal life. You might for a moment just think of it like this, that, that the, word, um, the word believing we might want to link together uh, with the word seeing that serpent. Now let's quickly think of the parallels and why this unusual event in the wilderness was so significant. What happens in the wilderness I want to summarize quickly and that is that um, a great Hebrew translation of Numbers chapter 21 verse 4 puts it like this, that, um, that the people grew bitter with impatience with God. And uh, in other words, the story begins in a journey that has already been marked by miracles, but now, because of hardship along the way, the griping and groaning and complaining of the people has risen to a fever pitch. And Numbers 12, 5 says, they spoke against Moses and against God. So in their minds, they, they fused together Moses, the wilderness leader, whose rod God had used to part the waters of the Red Sea. And they began to gripe and complain. And, and their howls of resentment went up toward God. Well, the New Testament tells us in Romans 3 that there's none righteous, no not, no, not one. And there's a sense in which all of us are a part of the howling crowd. All of us in our sinful nature at some point, in some way, are part of the howling crowd. We see things in view of our human perspective, and there is a reaction against God. Why did you let this happen to me? Then the serpents enter into that picture, such a, such a striking image that, that rattles you when you read it, that God sent vipers among them, and the people were poisoned, and they began to die. This is one of those judgment passages where we see that that the holiness of God was so, so awesome and so vital to the very existence of heaven and earth and human life that when his holiness was violated, this chosen people became exhibit A in the laboratory of life to show in physical ways what we can't see about the spiritual. Here's what I think is so significant about the venom of the vipers. The venom of the vipers helps us picture something that's hard for us to contend with. And that is, there's a sinfulness inside of us that we cannot accurately diagnose. We're not good at diagnosing our own sins. We're great at diagnosing others. But we're not that good at diagnosing our own sins. The venom of the vipers, the poison creating that Judgment in the veins is a 
vivid and stark picture of what Romans chapter 3, and that's why I put the right column here, Romans 3 and Romans 7, where Paul says, Oh, say it out loud with me, that second thing on the right. Oh, wretched man that I am, Romans 7, 24. That tells us what Romans 3 describes, the basic sinfulness of the human heart. Then, again, back in that uh, 14th verse of the Gospel of John, we have the stunning solution. We're stunned by the fact that God would command Moses to lift up what? A serpent, a bronze serpent, but... When we go over here to Galatians chapter 3, we realize there's a reason that amazing image comes just before John 3.16. And what is it? The bronze serpent symbolized all of the evil, all of the wickedness, all of the depravity of human existence, that there would come a day when the coming Messiah would take upon himself the undeserved curse for what the serpent represents. So Galatians 3.13 says, if you can see the words, read it with me, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming the cursed one, the accursed one. Christ redeemed us from the curse. And then finally, the, and here's where John 3.15 and 16 come so beautifully into the picture. If you think about it, uh, A famous artist in Europe many years ago, a couple hundred years ago, painted this scene of the the people in the wilderness and the bronze serpent. And very deftly, this artist painted the picture in such a way that those that were looking to the bronze serpent, their skin was clean. But while those that were kept looking and staring at themselves, the disease remained. It was a vivid portrayal of exactly the parallel we have in the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is to believe. And what do we believe? We believe in John 3.16 that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Let's look at that for a minute. His one and only born one. That's what only begotten literally means. In John 3.16, the only born one of God. God the Father, (laughs) Jesus, the unique, the eternal deity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who becomes man and then gives himself. Why? So that we could believe. So that we could believe and be free. Say it with me. We know it. Let's say it. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, That whoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Why? Because the curse for my sinfulness that would doom me was placed in the righteousness of God. That, That righteousness Martin Luther marveled at in 1517 when he learned in Romans that there's a new righteousness. It doesn't come out of your heart. No human can manufacture righteousness. It had to come from God. The good news of the gospel is God bringing to sinful human beings what we could not have and did not possess in ourselves so that that 17th verse tells us then that God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but say it with me now, but that the world through him 
might be saved. I wanted to send you home today with just uh, five quick takeaways about the Reformation itself. These truths, see, they all synchronized into what Martin Luther was, the, the light was just beginning to dawn on that young monk's eyes when he nailed those 95 theses to the wall to the door of the Wittenberg Chapel. He, he could not have grasped where that light was going to break out. But the light was on. And because the light was on, there are five takeaways all of us have. The effects of believing in Jesus as the light of the gospel broke out in the Reformation are five things you can take to your heart and you can share. First, the just shall live by faith. To be made right with God is to be placed in a new path of life in which your faith in him flourishes and thrives. Secondly, this righteousness from God has now been revealed. You can count on it. You, you can abandon the filthy rags of your own attempts to make yourself good. You can abandon dependence on ritual or dependence on some human virtue. I'm better than somebody else because of my diet or my exercise or my religion or my denomination or my, or my externals. No, God's righteousness has been revealed and it's in Christ himself. Thirdly, that there is, oh my, that God's living and open word, the open word of God that it's accessible to every human soul. Fifth, fourth, that the conscience is free. What broke out like wildfire in Germany, Switzerland, France, across the continent was the conscience is free. Even if they didn't completely agree with Martin Luther, the light was beginning to come on. It would be like, have you ever seen those pictures? Have you ever been flying at night, coming in on final approach to an airport? And, you, and, and you're, as the pilot is descending, if it's a night flight, and, and you get to a certain point of altitude where you're looking out your window and you can start seeing the lights of the city. And you, you start seeing, let's say you're flying into Dallas, and, and you, you know at about, what, maybe 12,000 feet or 9,000, you're starting to see the lights down there. And it's like, that's like how it was in Europe. The lights were coming on everywhere in the darkness. Martin Luther summarized this result of, the practical result in the souls of people by this wonderful little quote. And it's a great takeaway to, to think of what it meant to all of them. A poor woman knitting a pair of stockings in the way of faith <laughs> does a greater work than Alexander did in conquering the world. The light of the gospel elevated the dignity of the individual. And for that, with John 3.16, we can say, thank you, Jesus, for this good news. Can we pray? Heavenly Father, I pray today that in every way, in every way that Nicodemus himself was encountered and enlightened and I'm sure walked away from that night with Jesus with such a sense of wonder and awe, such a sense of, what have I just heard? I, I, I can imagine that for Nicodemus, that there must have been something in his soul that was responding, but he needed time for it to settle in and gel. That could be true for somebody here or somebody listening to this. But Lord, today, may we, may we rejoice together and ignite that flame of rejoicing in the hearts of your people that your fierce, redeeming love has found us in our sin and brought us the news that in Jesus Christ and in Christ alone, 
we can be free. Amen.